I think it's fair to say that as a fellowship, we're quite a diverse group of people. We've often commented on the variety of backgrounds that are represented here in the church. But we're also diverse, I think, in our understanding of the Bible. What I mean is, some of us would say that the Bible is really pretty new to us. Others of us have been reading it and studying it for many years. But the reality is, whatever stage we're at, there's still more for us to learn. More about the Bible, more about the Christian life, and more about God and God's ways. And we're going to find this illustrated for us in our passage this morning. We're going to see a brand new disciple, Saul, and a veteran disciple, Peter. And we're going to see both of them serving God and also growing in their understanding of God and of the way God works. We're going to pick up this morning in the middle of Acts chapter 9, verse 19. If you're using a church Bible, that's page 1103. And we'll be going through to the end of chapter 9 this morning. Last week we saw one of the most dramatic conversions there's ever been. Saul, the angry persecutor of the church, the number one enemy of the church, became a member of the church. He was confronted by the risen Jesus and he found new life in Jesus. When we ended last week, Saul had been welcomed by a believer called Ananias. And he'd been baptized as an outward testimony to what God had done in his heart. And we pick up this morning in the middle of chapter 9, verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. It's hard for you and me to imagine the change that has happened in Saul's life. His whole outlook An understanding of reality has been turned upside down. He's moved from seeing Jesus as a dead man who inspired a dangerous movement to knowing Jesus as his living Savior and Lord, the one who gives his life meaning and purpose. And Saul has no other thought in his mind than to serve his new master. And he starts right where he is. He came to Damascus to persecute the followers of Jesus. But when he gets there, he starts calling people to become followers of Jesus. Saul is a different person. 
And his new message is summed up for us in two phrases. Verse 20 says he preached that Jesus is the Son of God. And in verse 22 we're told he worked to prove to people that Jesus is the Christ, meaning he's the Messiah, which means God's special, chosen, anointed one. The whole of the Old Testament was looking forward to this person. And Saul's message is, Jesus is him. Jesus is the fulfillment of every Old Testament hope and promise. Now we might wonder how it is that after only a few days of being a Christian, Saul can suddenly become such a powerful preacher of Jesus. Well, the explanation is that before he met Jesus, Saul already had all the background knowledge to understand Jesus. And when Jesus took hold of his life, all those pieces that were already there fell into place for Saul. We learn elsewhere in the New Testament that Saul had been trained as a rabbi. That means he was an expert in the Jewish scriptures. That's what we know as the Old Testament. In fact, commentators tell us that men of Saul's level of rabbinical training would have memorized the entire Old Testament. So when Saul became a Christian, he didn't have to start digging his way into the Bible. He had the Bible nailed down. And he ended up writing a good chunk of the New Testament himself. So he had a bit of a head start on you and me. And in addition to that, even before he met the risen Jesus, Saul would have known about him. He may well have heard Jesus preach before he was crucified. And Saul certainly knew the way Christians viewed Jesus. He would never have persecuted the Christians so violently unless he knew what they believed. Then on the road to Damascus and on the days immediately following, everything fell into place for Saul. He didn't need a training course before he started preaching Jesus. His whole life had been training for this. He just didn't realize it until a couple of days ago. And remember Saul's personality too. Saul was not a wallflower. He wasn't a retiring kind of person. He wasn't only an educated man, he was a man of boldness and energy. Boldness and energy that had led him to hunt down Christians and drag them off to prison. But now, he marches into the synagogues in Damascus, those were the Jewish meeting places, and he starts preaching Jesus with all of his boldness and charisma. The point is, all of Saul's great abilities are now being used to the full to serve Jesus. But Saul does still have something to learn. He has to learn that all the human ability in the world isn't going to get the job done. Not when it comes to opening hearts and minds to the good news. Saul is going to learn that by themselves, even the strongest of God's servants aren't strong enough. 
Verse 21 tells us the Jews in Damascus were astonished by the turnaround in Saul. Verse 22 says they're baffled or confounded by his persuasive teaching about Jesus. But the result is not that they decide to believe him. No, verse 23 says they decide they're going to kill him. We're told that he learns about the plan to kill him, and verse 25 says his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Notice that those who help him are called his followers. Even in such a short space of time, Saul has stood out as a leader among the believers. That's not a surprise. His leadership qualities are not news to us. What is new is Saul's experience of humiliation. Maybe in Sunday school we learn to think of this as a great escape story, over the wall in a basket. But actually this is pure humiliation for Saul. It turns out to be a defining incident in his life. He mentions it again in one of his letters, 2 Corinthians. And there, the word he uses for basket tells us it was a basket normally used for carrying fish to the market. Before he submitted his life to Jesus, Saul was a high flyer. He was respected for his great learning. He was feared for his ruthlessness. But now Saul is learning what it's like to follow Jesus. It means being willing to suffer hatred, even from your own people. It means being willing to suffer humiliation, too. In this case, escaping by crouching in a stinking basket for fish. In these verses, Saul is learning the law of power and weakness. He's a gifted man. In many ways, he's a strong man. But his powerful mind and his powerful personality are not enough for this new life with its new mission. This is a life of spiritual battles and struggles. And later, Paul would write, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What use is human strength for that kind of struggle? Saul has to learn about his own weakness so he'll see his need for God's strength. And so his very first preaching mission ended with a humiliating exit from the scene. And Saul learned the lesson. Later he wrote about another experience of his own weakness, something that he called his thorn in the flesh. He tells us, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul goes on, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is a lesson that we all need to learn. It doesn't matter who we are. By ourselves, none of us are equipped for this battle we're in. We need the power and the armor of God and the weapons of God. And so we need to be praying in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. We need God's help. But most of us, I think, struggle our whole lives to learn this lesson. Sometimes we forget it, and sometimes we just resist it. We keep getting surprised over and over again by our own lack of power. God keeps sending a long line of fish baskets and thorns in the flesh to help us learn, or whatever the equivalent is for us. Whatever the overwhelming and humiliating circumstances are in our lives. And often we're quick to respond by saying, why is God doing this? Why is God allowing this? But we're wiser if we say, I don't know why you're doing this. But I know I need your power in the midst of it. I understand my weakness and my dependence on you. Saul has learned a new lesson in Damascus. And now he moves on to Jerusalem. And there, in Jerusalem, we see him learning the need for the family of God. Verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him And brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord. And that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem. Speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews. But they tried to kill him. Then when the brothers learned of this. They took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. All the indications are that before Saul met Jesus, he was a pretty self-sufficient person. He was a bit of a lone ranger. Yes, he did have people who traveled with him, but they seemed more like hired help. They're just extra pair of hands to do his dirty work. There was no indication that Saul worked as part of a team. But that changes when he meets Jesus. Although to begin with, he faces a bit of trouble. It's not surprising that the other believers are suspicious of Saul at first. It would be a pretty clever tactic to pretend to join them and then end up capturing them all. It looks actually like Saul has ended up in no man's land. The Jews are trying to kill him, and the Christians are too scared to have anything to do with him. But while the others are keeping their distance, Barnabas steps in. 
We've met him before, back in chapter 4. There we were told that his real name was actually Joseph. Barnabas was a nickname given to him by the apostles. It meant son of encouragement or the encourager. That's what he was known for. And here, Saul benefits from his help. We're told Barnabas took him to the apostles and vouched for him. And so they accept him. In a sense, this is a continuation of the lesson that Saul began to learn in the fish basket. He's learning that God's strength and encouragement often come to us through his people. We're not self-sufficient. We can't do it all on our own. We need the family of God. Last week we saw how God showed grace to Saul through Ananias. Ananias was the first Christian to call Saul brother. And here God's grace comes through Barnabas. When Saul is helpless... Barnabas puts his own reputation on the line. He does it by putting his arm around Saul and making sure that he's accepted in the family. And look again at what happens next. Verse 28. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. It's obvious that Saul was not a wishy-washy kind of preacher. He wasn't one of those preachers who leaves people unsure about what he really thinks. His message is so direct and so penetrating that his audiences often try to kill him. But notice that his new family looks out for him. There are a couple of times in the book of Acts where we get the impression that Saul's friends have to drag him away from a situation. And this seems to be one of those times. We're told they took him and sent him off. I have a picture in my mind of these believers wrestling Saul out of the city for his own safety. That's probably quite close to the truth. We need our Christian brothers and sisters. And sometimes we need them to help us do the wise thing, whether we want to do it or not. Saul would come to cherish Christian fellowship and Christian co-workers. He would come to place great value on this body that he's part of, the church. We read one of his descriptions of the church as a body earlier in the service. He called it a unit made up of many parts. If you and I take the New Testament seriously, we'll understand that it's not possible to be a lone ranger Christian. We're not going to meet people with more self-confidence and drive than the pre-Christian Saul. Yet as soon as he becomes a follower of Jesus, he understands his need for Christian fellowship. 
So let's not be people whose first instinct is to withdraw from the church body when we face difficulties. Why would we do that? For all of its rough edges, the body of Christ is one of the main channels of God's grace to us. We have to learn to share our lives and invite people into our lives. Considering what we've just heard about the Grecian Jews trying to kill Saul, we might wonder about what we read in verse 31. It says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Presumably, the reason the church is enjoying a time of peace is because Saul has stopped persecuting it. The church still has enemies, but they're just not as organized and as driven as Saul was. And in this period of calm, the church grows, both numerically and spiritually. And one of the leaders of the church goes on a tour of the churches. The New Testament talks about the one church of Jesus Christ. That's all believers thought of together, no matter where they live and no matter what period in history they have lived in. But the New Testament also refers to local manifestations of that one church in various places. And Peter decides to go on a tour of those local manifestations of the church. With Saul having been sent off to Tarsus to give his enemies time to cool down, the focus shifts to Peter in verse 32. We're told, as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and tidy up your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. 
Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. In this section, Peter is learning that the God of great power is also the God of little people and little details. Think back for a moment to what we've seen over recent weeks. We've seen the stoning of Stephen in Jerusalem, a big event that affected the whole church. It resulted in the church being scattered. Then we saw the episode with Simon the sorcerer, a man who was able to amaze all the people of Samaria. Then we saw the conversion of a man of big political importance, the Ethiopian eunuch, the man who was in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And then we saw the conversion of Saul, the number one enemy of the church, who will go on to become the number one church planter and teacher of the church. But now who do we have? Aeneas and Tabitha, also known as Dorcas, depending on what language you prefer, and a tanner named Simon. Little people that Peter meets on his tour. And yet, they're referred to as saints in verse 32. In the New Testament, all those who belong to Jesus are called saints. Even those we'd otherwise think of as just little people. And what was the great work Tabitha did that made her so valuable to God? So valuable that he used Peter to raise her up from the dead. What was she doing that was so important? She made clothes for the poor. And yet she is honored with the title of disciple in verse 36. The only lady in the New Testament who's given that title. I think this section is here for a couple of reasons. One of those reasons is simply to remind us that God is not just interested in the big people in the big churches. He's interested in little people too. Including little ladies in little churches who sew clothes for the poor. God is always working out his eternal plan. And here, as he weaves the perfect tapestry of his plan, God decides that he needs Tabitha's thread for a little longer. He makes sure the Apostle Peter is in just the right place at just the right time, to plead for Tabitha's life. When she died, Peter was only 10 or 12 miles away. Her body had been washed for burial, but God didn't want her buried, at least not yet. He had more work for her to do. I think this helps us when we think about the issue of supernatural healing. I would guess that for some of us, as we've looked at the book of Acts, that has been the elephant in the room. What I mean is, it's been the big thing that everybody's wondering about, but nobody's talking about. At least the preacher's not talking about it very much. 
But I think the context here helps us to think about this. First of all, the book of Acts as a whole shows us we are not to expect this all of the time. Stephen, for example, was not raised. When the apostle James was executed over in chapter 12, he is not raised. And clearly that's not because the possibility never occurred to anyone in the church. This passage shows us that Peter is quite open to praying for the dead to be raised. Nor do Stephen and James stay dead because no one had enough faith for them to be raised. This passage doesn't say anything about Peter's faith. It says he prayed, and on this occasion, God answers his prayer with a yes. Prayer for healing is never presented as a mechanical thing in the New Testament. There's never any sense that if we just summon up enough faith and use the right words, then God is duty-bound to do it. If that was the case, then the Apostle Paul either didn't have enough faith or he didn't know the right words because he was not healed of his mystery illness. Despite three times of pleading with God to heal him, No, the reality is that God can heal in spectacular ways. And I think we have every reason to believe he still heals in spectacular ways today. But he does not do it on demand. He does it when it fits with the tapestry he's weaving out of every little life and every little detail in this world. So I believe it's right for us to pray boldly for healing. It's right for the elders to go and pray for those who request prayer for healing. James chapter 5 is very clear on that. And sometimes God may give us the confident faith that goes before healing. But what we must not do is imagine we have some kind of handle on God's power. Simon the sorcerer, you remember, got a stern rebuke from Peter for thinking along those lines. Another thing we must never, ever do is make supernatural healing a necessary mark of the authentic, spirit-filled church. Once we say that, or once we give that impression... We're saying that healings need to be happening. And we're pretty much guaranteeing that for every genuine miracle from God, there's going to be a whole load of counterfeits and frauds and manipulation and maybe even worse than that. Simon the sorcerer showed us that there are other powers at work in this world. And sometimes they can even imitate God's power. God's Spirit can be present and active in the church and yet choose not to heal. God heals not on demand and not as a routine. 
He heals when it's in line with his purposes to heal in that specific instance. And in this instance, I think we can say that God healed Tabitha to demonstrate that his care and concern for the church isn't just focused on the mother church in Jerusalem or the big men who are doing big, important things. This lady disciple in Joppa is equally a part of God's game plan. Peter is definitely not on a healing tour. He's on a loving the saints tour. And as Peter tours around, he's growing in his ability to love people who are very different from him. How do we know that? Well, the final verse of our passage tells us that he stayed with a tanner named Simon. Now, I realize that might not seem like a big deal, but it is. I said earlier that I think this section is here for a couple of reasons. And this mention of Simon is the second reason. A tanner was someone who worked with the carcasses of dead animals. And that was a line of work that was considered unclean for Jews. But here's Peter, from a Jewish background, staying in a tanner's house. Peter is learning that God is interested in people who are very different from Peter. Now, staying with Simon might not really have been a major step for Peter to take. But it is preparing Peter for the major step God's going to call him to in chapter 10. But that has to wait until next week. Our passage this morning has enough lessons for us. No matter how long we've been a Christian, these are lessons we need to keep coming back to. We are not as strong as we think we are. We are reliant on God's power. And we need each other. So sign up for the lunch next Sunday. And this passage shows us too that our powerful God cares about little people and little details. Let's ask for his blessing as we sing, Lord of the Church, we pray for our renewing.